On this episode of the High Impact Man podcast, our guest is Dr. Mike Frischa. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon at Geisinger Medical Center that I've worked with uh, for many years and I've admired him. He's very uh, smart and uh, really cares about his patients. He's going to tell his stories. He grew up outside of Philadelphia, spent his entire training from undergrad, medical school, residency, and fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's going to talk about how he backdoored into medicine, but He's really glad he, he did, and, and we're really, really glad to have him and lucky to have him here in uh, Danville, Pennsylvania, performing cardiac surgery and taking care of our community. He's truly a high-impact man. Welcome to the High Impact Man podcast. High-impact men from across the nation sharing their stories of inspiration, encouragement, and hope. Gosh, seek transformational relationships. Now, what you're hearing from the culture is not right. Pick up the six, you know what I mean? But you never know who your six sometimes is. Stop being less. To help others become the virtuous leaders they are called to be and that our nation desperately needs. Well, welcome to another episode of the High Impact Man podcast. This is Nevin Gorky. I'm your host. For all you guys involved in F3 out there, you know me as DFib. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Troy Klinger, known as Dial-Up in the Gloom to the F3 guys. Uh, Dial-Up, we just, uh, when this airs, uh, the episode with Casket that we just recorded is going to air. That was really good. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Great conversation. And some of the some of the moments in his life, it's like, wow, like it's God speaking to him. Right. Very directly. And uh, yeah, and then the fact that like, what, it was 40 years, 40 years later uh, that he kind of got into, min- right? I think it was 40 years later that he yeah. got into ministry after right. having that first tugging of his heart uh, when he had that missionary speaking to him at a, you know, like at a frat house to a bunch of Right, and out of the blue right? says, there's two people in here that God's calling yeah, to ministry. That's like right? really cool. Uh, yeah. Just that, like he, he, he felt that and just the way it all went down. Yep. It's always neat to hear those kind of stories. God-like moments. Yep. There are no coincidences. That's right. right. All right. Well, our guest today is Dr. Mike Frischa. He's uh, actually a surgeon that I work with. He's a cardiac surgeon. Uh, We've been working together for, I don't even know how long now, but uh, well, let's see, three plus probably at least nine or 10 years now. Uh, And uh, he's, so all you F3 guys out there that you you might as well just forget about hearing about fitness because he's not part of F3. Although we did have him ask him to sign a disclaimer to come and work out with us but we hasn't we, we actually don't have the disclaimer so he didn't, he didn't read the fine print at the <laughs> bottom where it says you must attend one f3 workout no he didn't he didn't read that yet <laughs> nor did i sign it no no nor did just can't sign it if it doesn't exist we don't have one i forget are you a mountain biker i forget it right not really no okay i was thinking you rode for some reason no he's just naturally fit he yeah. could eat whatever he wants and he doesn't gain he's got weight. the high metabolism yeah yeah i'm Less. jealous no, i was asking because like we want we want the guys to get the f the uh, biking the mountain biking group started i was talking about that uh mm-hmm. talking to gigawatt about that yeah gigawatt about that this weekend and so i think there's some momentum forming you just want to buy a mountain bike (laughs) (laughs) that's that's why i keep denying the request to go riding with those guys because i know that Mm -hmm. yeah i want to buy a mountain bike because mine's a little uh it's a classic we'll call it that it's a huffy right i said it's not it's not a huffy (laughs) it was a a high-end mountain bike back in the Uh 1990 there's nothing wrong with a two or 1993 All right. Well, our guest is Dr. Mike Frischia. So, uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, being aired. He's in studio, as you all might imagine, since he lives here in the Danville area. Um, We are uh, really looking forward to this because 
we love having guys on that are not part of F3 because this is a high impact man podcast. And yep. although we love F3 uh, and there's a lot of high impact men there, um, there's a lot of high impact men outside of F3 that uh, have something to share. So every man has a story to tell. And uh, I've admired uh, Dr. Fisher for a long time. Uh, we worked together and he's, he's just, he's a, not just uh, obviously intelligent guy, but has a lot of leadership qualities and he's, he's just a, a uh, the genuine good guy who cares about people. So we'll get right into it. So, uh, Mike, I want to, uh, we usually start from, from the beginning, like, uh, you know, where you grew up, you know, what was that like? So why don't you start there? Um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia in Coatesville, PA, Downingtown, actually. Um, um, older brother, younger sister. Um, and uh, Coatesville kind of... Um, has a similar feel to this area. It's um, it's not exactly rural or at the time it was a, felt a little bit rural. There's, you know, trees and fields and that kind of stuff. Um, but you were still within 30 minutes of major Philadelphia suburbs and about an hour of downtown Philadelphia. So, um, and, uh, you know, my, uh, parents, my mother, uh, was a nurse. Um, and my father started as a, an electrician, and uh, started his own business ultimately, and so, um, so th- that was sort of my that was my background. Um, it wasn't. It was a pretty middle class kind of blue collar um, upbringing for the most part, I would say. Yeah, and you um, you played golf in high school. I did. My brother and I. <clears throat> Uh, got my dad's golf clubs out of the basement and just started hitting balls at the house when we were about 12 years old. At the house. Well, we were trying to go over. (laughs) (laughs) And in those days, most siding, or at least our siding, was aluminum. So, man, it made a great sound when you hit it. It left a nice mark. And and quite a mark. And so, uh, yeah, we started playing golf around that age. And and it was just what we did in the neighborhood, you know. No internet, Mm -hmm. no cable. We didn't have cable where we lived. We had rabbit ears on the TV, and so other than watching the Three Stooges in the summer on, you know, in the afternoons, mm-hmm. we got bored of that, and so we would go outside, and we made a bunch of golf holes around the neighborhood and hit it across the road and, you know, here, there, and everywhere, um, and uh, so we played a lot of just golf like that, and it was seven bucks to play around, and so we would get someone to drop us off at a golf course, and, um, and then that moved into high school. We played in high school. Um, and now I play about once a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, we played together, but it was years ago Yeah, and I, you, you know, I'm not very good, but, um, I hope I could play again after my recent back surgery. I don't think I'm gonna be able to play till next year. Mm. I'm sure it didn't improve my swing at all. <laughs> maybe it did. Maybe I won't swing as hard. Maybe I'll be better. <laughs> well, I was going to say, well, when we played together, you, you were okay, but you could hit it far. So you, you can't hit yeah. it far. Yeah. 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 It just doesn't go where I want it to all the time. <laughs> Long, but wrong. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Long, but wrong. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's really interesting. I, you're, you're younger than I am. How old are you? 47. 47. About to turn 48. Uh, it's interesting. You didn't have cable then because it was around, I think. Yeah. just never quite made it to our neighborhood for whatever yeah. reason until we were about 17 years old. Yeah, yeah, you know, cable television actually started. Oh boy, here we go. Not too far from here <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Our cable company, SCSC, help me out here. SCTV. Satellite cable, right? SCTV, yeah. Satellite uh, cable television. Well, I think that it was, was CATV. 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 Yeah. Well, anyway, 
Uh, it started in a mountain nearby. Some guy started it, and that's how this company started. Yeah, cable television started right here, folks. Hmm. You mentioned Coatesville. I, I had a flashback. <laughs> we went when I was in high school. We went to a cross country meet in Coatesville, and they they took us up this long road to the top of this hill, and then literally they took us across this farm pasture. I think the morning of the race, they had literally cleared the cows out of the pasture to make it safe for the runners to come through. And there's like literally like cow patties all over the place that we're running through. And I, I, I was kind of chuckling because I remember distinctly, even though it was years ago and I'm getting old and my memory's going, I remember guys after the race just having cow crap splattered nice. all up the sides of their legs after the race. And it was like, huh, this is a little different. Yeah, um, that's but home field advantage. It was home field advantage, <laughs> apparently. But yeah. anyway, that's my memory. But of, you, you, that's my reference that I have to Coates to Coatesville. Mm-hmm. Cow poop, cow poop. So C- you, you're place. right. It was CATV, cable antenna television. Right. Ah, I, I had is. to clear that up because it was bothering me. But it's um, part of SECV now. That's right, why right. you were service electric. Yep. That's why you were. But CATV TV's. was the thing. Yep. Um, that was we we uh, when I was coaching soccer, we had a lot of tournaments down that area. Was that a soccer sort of hotbed at the time? Uh, not so much. I think a little bit more east um, of us, where you get a little bit more Philadelphia suburbs, definitely a hotbed. I mean, there was soccer. We we played some club soccer, but Coatesville itself was uh, more um, lower income. There was a steel big steel mill there that kind of was on its way out, um, and so uh, my high school was pretty, um, uh, you know it was not a ton of people going to colleges and things like that. Um, so it was, uh, you know, Coatesville was more known for soccer and, or excuse me, basketball, track, football, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. I, I remember they had a really good basketball team when I was in the eighties when, I, when yeah. I was playing. Yeah. Um, so you went in, in high school, you ended up, I know you ended up obviously ended up becoming a physician. Did you, did you want to go into medicine even in high school? Did you know that? Nope. Um, I had no idea, you know, what I wanted to do at that time. Um, I just remember around the time of maybe junior year, people asking me what I wanted to do. And I I don't know. Um, (laughs) And they said, well, you're good at science. Yeah. And math, you should be an engineer. Okay, I'll be an engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't any more complicated than that. Uh, I think it's really hard to have any idea Mm -hmm. at that age what you want, which is probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, no, no idea. It was just kind of what I was good at. And so I just sort of followed that path into college, um, and applied to colleges with that in mind. Um, and, um, I got into, uh, you know, Lehigh, which was an excellent engineering school, Bucknell, mm-hmm. uh, Penn state, some other places. And I applied to Penn and got in there was kind of like an anomaly on my list of places to apply. Um, and, um, you know, my dad said, my dad, I don't remember giving me a lot of advice. Not because he wasn't good at it, but because I was a pretty quiet kid and I kept my cards pretty close. So I don't remember asking him for a lot of advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember a few things him telling me as I grew up. And one was... Um, I applied to Swarthmore and he said, I'm not sure you'll fit in there. You're a pretty conservative kid. Mm-hmm. And I grew up my entire life. My parents never uttering the words conservative, liberal, you know, Republican, Democrat, mm-hmm. nothing. 
it was just right and wrong. Um, but he said, you know, you're kind of a conservative kid. I'm not sure you'll, you'll fit in there, which was probably correct. And then when I got into Penn, he said, you know, if you're sure you're going to be an engineer, you'd be better off going to Lehigh. He said, but if you really don't know, or if there's any chance that you'll switch, you'd be much better off if you're at Penn. Yeah. So um, for that reason, as well as for my future wife, uh, <laughs> those were the reasons I chose to go to Penn. Did you know your wife's name is Katie? Did you know yeah. Katie before you went to Penn? Yeah, we grew up in the same town. Um, she was from Coatesville as well. Uh, and um, I, we met, I mean, I, we always kind of knew who I knew who she was, but we were never particularly friendly until uh, her brother was on the golf team with me. So I started, you know, her brother and I were, were, were close and we're spending a lot of time together. And then, you know how that goes, started mm-hmm. noticing his sister. Yeah. <laughs> when did you guys start dating uh we started dating right she's a year older than me so um uh she was about to graduate and i was uh going into my senior year of high school high school sweethearts yeah oh uh-huh. you uh, dial up hopeless romantic he <laughs> loves these stories <laughs> yeah because uh you because your wife is a yeah i'm married to my high school sweetheart yeah. as well yeah, yeah. i'm not I didn't even know my wife in high school. <laughs> That's probably good. Yeah. <laughs> good for her. Yeah. But you got an Ivy League school, so you must have been uh, a good student in high school. Did you Did you work really hard at it? or did it's No, kinda... I got to be honest, I didn't. Um, school came, um, I wouldn't say it came easy, but you know, I did my homework and, you know, I didn't lie, cheat, and steal. And uh, between those things, um, and I think being blessed with, you know, um, I don't know what the word is, but intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, school came pretty easy. So when I got to college, I had a awakening. Mm-hmm. It was a struggle. Yeah. College is different. And I, I don't know what it's like to go to an Ivy league school. Cause I didn't get there, but college is different. I remember, I remember my first year of college was like review of, uh, high school. It wasn't that hard. Um, but I had some advanced classes in high school, but the second semester hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, Whoa, okay. I actually have to work at this. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a pretty typical story. Uh, do you have to, is there a minimum SAT score? I did, I never thought about this, but is there a SAT score, a minimum one that you have to get to get into Penn? Um, I don't know. My, I would say my score was lower than average, certainly lower than most people I knew. Um, I'm not sure. You know, at, at that time, the engineering school was a little less competitive, I think. Yeah. So if I was applying to Wharton or something, I don't think I would have gotten in. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know. I think at that time, you know, from my school, it was, I mean, I could think of one person in the previous 30 years who had gone to Penn for sure, if not an Ivy League school. So I don't know. The rumor at the time was that um, diversity at that time meant a lot of different kinds of people. And so um, certainly most people that went to Penn, I did not identify with. Mm -hmm. Um, They were from Connecticut and private school and this, that, and the other thing, you know, and I was, that was not me. Um, So I think that probably helped as well coming from a school that didn't have a lot of academic achievement that, um, you know, that was probably pretty middle to low in the road in terms of quality um, and, and, and a moderate number of low-income people from my school. So, so that may have had something to do with it. I don't know. They got to let a few peasants in. <laughs> something like that. You know, again, at that time, I think, you know, um, at that time, maybe that's what diversity meant to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, 
you but you and you end up spending your basically all of your education at University of Pennsylvania, correct? Yeah, it was the best place I got into every step of the way. Yeah, uh, and I'm not much for change. Um, you know, I've, I've lived in Pennsylvania my whole life, and uh, now I think looking back, it would have been nice to try something else. But um, but yeah, it was the best. It was the best. I really I overachieved at every step. I would really say that that was true. Um, I probably didn't belong, or at least I didn't fit the typical profile of someone going into undergrad. Medical school, I kind of slipped in the back door a little bit that way too. Uh, residency, fellowship, kind of the whole the whole deal was um, was a little bit atypical. Yeah. So when did you decide that you were going to go into medicine? How did that happen? Um, you know, my mom was a nurse, so I had some exposure, but I really had zero. Um, um, interest. Um, at Penn, a lot of people were pre-med and so it was kind of a thing to do. Um, I was in the engineering school and, um, and that was going fine, but it was dry, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it just, it was just dry and, and it just didn't feel like that that was how I wanted to spend my life. I, you know, I, I didn't grow up with, a you know, some people uh, grow up or some cultures have a very strong, you know, service, you know, you just serve others. How can I serve others mm-hmm. um, or give back, things like that. Um, and I don't think that was so explicit maybe in the way that I grew up, but I felt something like that, like, you know, you should do something um, with your life. Um, and it certainly didn't feel like engineering was that. Now, I'm sure you can do lots of wonderful things for a lot of people with engineering, mm-hmm. But I just kind of felt like um, I would identify it now as more of a human connection or an intimacy. Um, that's what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I couldn't, I couldn't articulate it at the time. If someone had said it to me, I'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. It's stupid. Right. But in retrospect, for a 20-year-old dude, right. that's what it was. So did you finish your engineering degree or did you switch to pre-med? Or? Uh, I was able to uh, to finish the engineering degree and then just take some extra classes during the course. There was a few people in my in my engineering program that were pre-med, so yeah. the path was kind of there. Okay. And you were dating Katie and she was going there as well? Yep, she was, uh, she was going as well. She's probably why I'm in this position today because I am not particularly disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was part of my struggles with college. She's very disciplined very intelligent and uh, because I wanted to spend a lot of time with her and she spent a lot of time being disciplined and studied. Right. That's what I did too. And so I'm sure my grades would have been much worse without (laughs) her influence. And so, uh, um, so most of my success I would attribute to her. Yeah. I think that, you know, the kind of culture you're in really makes a difference, right? I, I remember you told me when my kids were going to school, uh, both my uh, kids have graduated, all my kids have graduated from college now, but um, my daughter was going to Shippensburg. Now, not to say anything, not to say anything negative about Shippensburg, but uh, I remember you telling me that uh, as far as partying goes, so partying happens at you know Ivy League schools too and stuff like that. But the difference is that if you're going to the library and you're going to a you know a state school or something like that, you're the oddball. But if if you're not going to the library and you're in the Ivy League school, uh, then now you're the oddball. And so there's a, there's a culture of working and, and, you know, studying and, and academic achievement there that you and I really didn't get. (laughs) 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 
It's all good. Yeah, it's all good. Turned out good for us, yeah, right? Yeah, we yeah, turned we, out all right, I think. We did all right. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> we got a podcast. We have to have our wives back on. Yeah, we got a podcast with hundreds of listeners. That's right. It doesn't get any better now. <laughs> All right, so so you get into medical school, and um, Katie became a lawyer. Did she go to law school? Where did she go to law school? Um, she went to Temple. Um, she um, she could have got. She got into Penn. She got into Georgetown, and at the time, um, she got to Temple as well. And and uh, you know, she uh, got a scholarship to Temple, and she said, well, "What should I do?" And I said, "Well, you should do whatever you want." And uh, and, you know, for her, it was a real sacrifice to say, I'm going to turn down these really top-notch law schools yeah, and uh, go to Temple, which is a good law school. Um, but you have, to, you have to be really top in the class to, to be successful in, in the way that she could have been mm-hmm. uh, and, and was. And so she said, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to be a lawyer forever. I do want to be a mom and... and I don't know how that's going to look for me, but my career is not going to be everything. And so she said, we're better off saving the money. Yeah. Did, uh, did you guys get married while you were both in professional school? Or Yeah. yeah. I, I just when I started uh, in the end of my uh, medical school and she was in law school. Yeah. Okay. So you're in medical school. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I think the first decision you have to make uh, as to what you're going to do is, do I want to do medicine or do I want to do surgery? Yeah. Is that is that about right? You got to kind of pick your first branch. Yeah, you kind of got the, um, the first year, you know, it's sort of general stuff, and then they introduce you very slowly to things. And then in the second year, um, you start to get clinical rotations. And then um, by third year, you're kind of picking electives that are, you don't have a lot of time to kind of figure out Oh, I'm going to try this now, and then I'm going to try that, and see what I like. By the time the third year rolled around, when you're picking electives, those electives have to be focused in the area that you want to go into because you got to yeah. get letters of recommendation. It's like a big game; it's a stupid game, but um, but that's what it was. So, um, so that's kind of how the process goes. It moves quickly. It feels like it moves quickly, um, and you can change. But um, yeah, mostly by the end of the second year you kind of have to have a pretty good sense of, sense of to what you're doing. Can, can we go back? Cause you, you mentioned that getting into medical school, you kind of came in the back door, I think were your words. I'm, yeah. I'm mm-hmm. curious. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, so when I was, um, when I was an undergraduate, I worked in a, in a lab because you were supposed to do research and people said, that's a good thing to do. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I hated it. Oh yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I met some good people. Some I happened to work in a lab that uh, where the where the some of the surgical residents in the general surgery program were. were. And uh, one, you know, at that time I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go to medical school. This is what I want to do. And I uh, wasn't sure what at that time. And uh, one of the one of the guys there, you know, um, mentored me. And you know, he he was on his way out to to go to his his next step. You know, and uh, so he kind of helped me, uh, you know, why don't you take a year off? You'll probably be a stronger medical school applicant. Um, so I did that. And uh, and he said, you know, this lab that you're in, the guys who are going to be coming in behind me, you, you know, you may be better off somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So I looked for a different position, took a position um, in something that I would, I want to say it would seem interesting to me, but it didn't. Um, 
uh, I took a position in a different lab, and the uh, the guy I the guy who was the director of that lab I did not know at the time, but was a pretty influential member of the medical school faculty in that he was the director of the MD PhD program, which meant he was a PhD, yeah. but he knew all of the all of the people in the like admissions committee stuff. Yeah. And so um, about halfway through the year, I'm applying to medical schools, you know, pens on the list and, and a bunch of other ones. And, and uh, I would say my hit rate was pretty low. Um, and I got a few interviews and um, um, I hadn't heard from Penn and it's about January. I was supposed to hear by like February. And I said, uh, you know, um, I've only known you for six months. I've been working for you for six months, but you know, I was wondering if maybe you could write a letter in support of me if you felt that was appropriate. And uh, uh, to the admissions committee at Penn, and he said, um, "Hold on a minute." He leaves the office, comes back five <laughs> minutes later, and says, "You'll get your letter in the mail." I said, "What?" He said, yeah, I, "You know, I, you're an excellent worker, and I think highly of you. So that's worth an interview, but you got to do the rest." Mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, oh, okay. Thank you, sir." <laughs> and um, and then got my interview and uh, interview with a woman, uh, not unlike this podcast, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, she was a psychiatrist mm. and I don't know, you know, uh, uh, whether it was the Lord at work or what it was, but we just hit it off, had a great conversation. We really clicked, you know, what it, things that, uh, that we talked about. Um, and lo and behold, it was one of the few medical schools I got into was the university of Pennsylvania. Wow. It, it was a bit of a, you know, it wasn't the usual. Well, then I worked really hard, and then I did really well. Yeah, and, right. And then I invented something, and then I got in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nothing like that. So what do you, well, if you were to give advice to somebody who's trying, who's considering it, so you got a young person who's either in high school or college, and, you know, what, what advice would you give them if they're trying to consider maybe a, a, a career in medicine? Um, you know, it's hard. Um, recalling at that age, not really understanding, um, you know, I hear people ask my son this all the time. Hey, what do you want to do? And he's got no idea. Right. He knows what he's good at. Yeah. Um, but, um, he doesn't really, you're not mature enough to really understand. Yeah. And that's okay because you can change. But, um, I think what I would say is, um, you know, cast a wide net, um, find people who, who you can relate to um, and try to understand uh, from them what, what motivates them, what, what are the good things about what they're doing, what, what are the things that they don't like. And then, you know, we all do this. We try to see ourselves in that person's position. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would say strongly, strongly think about what you're giving up in order to get it. Um, and we're all giving up something. And so you have to be okay with what you're giving up. And the other thing I would say is it, it really is, I mean, it's a life of service. It really is. It's mm-hmm. not as much service as going into the military probably or being a minister. Um, but it is about putting other people's needs in front of your own, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a physician's assistant. We all have to resist the urge. You know, we all have to do things for the other person 
and, and their needs first, like being married. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's when, that's when things work the best and you got to understand that. And if that's not you, that's okay. Go invent something, make a ton of money mm-hmm. and serve the world that way. Hopefully you'll invent something that helps people. But, um, you know, that, but the people who are miserable in medicine, you know, I think are the people that never quite got that point. Yeah. So, uh, well, why so, you're doing it's important. Yeah. I, th- I think why you're doing it is important. And, and just that ability to, uh, to put other people's needs first. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, that's great advice. So, um, your dial up's daughter actually is trying to get into PA school. Yep. Um, hopefully that, uh, she'll definitely get in, but, uh, hopefully been in another year. <laughs> Uh, at Lock Haven and setting a bunch of records in the cross country team. But uh, uh, it's an interesting uh, decision because there's so many more options these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how competitive every, everything yeah, is. Yeah, it's all like, so competitive. Statistically, yeah, like the acceptance rate to PA schools like lower than medical school currently. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some of it's probably there's just not as many programs and just more people going that route because the commitment's a little less than mm-hmm. uh, obviously medical school. But it's, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. You know, yeah, I wouldn't get in today. I know she's like, she's like not even finished this year, and she's you know she's got an extra, you know she's got all next year, but she's already. I think the application process starts next week for her, so right. it's like going back through the whole application process. Yeah, you said you backdoored into medical school. I really backdoored into PA school. So. <laughs> no one even knew what a PA was back then, but yeah, I, I, I definitely backdoored into that. My family doctor, who my mother worked for, was the clinical coordinator or clinical uh, medicine director of our program. So. Yeah, mm. I don't think I would have got in otherwise. But, but yeah. I still. But you're I, a great PA. I still. I don't know if I'm great, but I I still outscored almost everybody in the class in the tests and grades. So I was. You didn't apply yourself the best in high school, as we all know, right? I'm an underachiever. Yeah, we already established but, that. But no, I think your your points of of the of the qualities of somebody in healthcare and uh, you know, putting serving others, right? I think that's yeah, that's the qualities that you have that that make you as successful as a as a PA. Yeah. Well, it's but it's, enough about you. we need to uh have that uh attitude and approach in all of life no matter what job you have i think right Mm -hmm. and you know we're talking about leadership we want to help guys become better leaders and um at f3 they talk about living third and so you got to put others needs ahead of your own which is what you just said and so i think it applies to you know whoever you are wherever you are if you're just leading your family if you're a man you're leading your family um i mean that's that's the approach you got to take servant leadership Mind if I jump in? Go ahead. All right. So, along those lines, I I think one thing that that always kind of puzzles me a little bit, and maybe we're jumping ahead to something you want to talk about earlier, but or later, but that that desire to be there to serve others and to 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 meet their needs, to me, it always seems like there's probably like this this kind of intersection between being able just to, to fully serve the patients, whether it be just in a clinic visit, right? And to give them all the potential time they need versus the, the business model that's that's pushing you to put numbers through uh, in, in a given day. Like how, how does that affect you personally, like as a, as a physician? Is it something that you struggle with because you have that pure passion for, for serving them? And do you struggle because of that? Well, with I, the, the business aspect of it is like, you know, I, I still got to see so many patients a day to, yeah. for the organization to make the money that they need to make. Well, I don't, now that you say it like that, I don't want to oversell 
my passion for caring for <laughs> others. <laughs> um, what, what I will say is that, you know, we all have these conflicting, um, these, these uh, conflicting aspects of our personality, right? Um, I want to be home. I want to be at home for my wife. Yeah. I want to be at home for my kids. Yep. Um, uh, I, I don't, I don't experience production pressure in my particular spot where I work. People don't come and say, you need to do this. You need to do that. Um, but I also experience a, a personal sort of, well, well, you did three, I'll do four. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why I have it. Um, but I experienced that. Maybe that's a personal pride thing. Um, so there's that. Um, the the intersection comes, you know, in and, and there's another conflict too, whether it's whether it's financial or production or things like that. You know, what we do is inherently dangerous, um, but it's fun. Yeah. Um, thankfully, you know, um, what we have to do is to um, to help people decide what is right for them. And so, um, much of the time I think is spent trying to help people understand, um, here's what we can do. Here's what we, here's what some people say we should do, whether it's the book or the evidence or the guidelines or whatever. And then here's you, do, mm-hmm. does all this apply to you? Yeah. And, and, and also what do you want? Um, and so, um, the easiest the easiest times are when people understand that stuff quickly or they don't care. You know, some people are just like, okay, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. And then the hardest times are the people that really, really struggle mm-hmm. with that, um, either because they don't understand or because they're not sure or they're scared, you know, things like that. So um, that's... that's uh, that's kind of the struggle I feel. I mean, it's easy sometimes to go in and to say, here's what you have and here's what we think you need. Um, but that's not the way to handle it. Yeah. Um, it's to really try to help them understand. Um, and so that's the, I think, the, I think that's part of the struggle, the big struggle for us. Yeah. It's I would one say of one of the things I didn't do yet is, is tell everybody that you're a heart surgeon. I, I, should have said that at the beginning. And we will say that in the intro before our intro, when we did not, uh, introduce our guests, which, uh, we'll record later, but, um, but we do heart surgery. And so, if, so everybody knows the perspective we're coming from. Uh, I, I love that comment. It's inherently dangerous, but it's fun <laughs> because, and it is, and I don't know, I, I don't know if, uh, people get into heart surgery because they like the adrenaline rush or all at all, or that kind of, for lack of a better word, way to describe it high octane kind of stuff maybe i don't know the challenge that it presents well tell me why did you get into heart surgery so you you know you're in medical school you get doing residency how did you de- decide well i kind of backdoored into that one too yeah. um <laughs> it's a theme um so during residency i wasn't quite sure uh I, okay i decided i want to be a surgeon and i wasn't quite sure what kind of surgeon and i always kind of thought, well i just you know do general surgery and you know, jack of all trades kind of thing. I don't want to, 
I don't want to be a brain surgeon or those people are crazy. I don't want to be a heart surgeon. Those people are crazy. They're really crazy. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, they were, um, I don't want to do extra training. Um, you know, we also have this thing called the match where, uh, you apply for positions in training, you know, residencies like this fellowship is like that. You apply for a position and then, uh, you rank programs and the programs rank you and then a centralized agency matches people. Mm -hmm. So you open an envelope and that tells you where you're going to go. Well, I wasn't having any of that. <laughs> um, I had a child, you know, had a wife with a really good job. You know, all of our families was in the area. Life was comfortable. Um, or as comfortable as it could be as a resident. And so, you know, that's just, I wasn't, I never wanted anything that bad that I would uh, put that in jeopardy. Yeah. And so, um, I worked with a guy who was a thoracic surgeon and he said, Oh, you should do thoracic surgery. And, you know, explained all the benefits. And I was like, well, I'm not going to apply for a match. And it's not really that important to me. I think I'll be just fine doing this. And then, uh, they didn't fill their position that year, um, in thoracic surgery at Penn. There was, you know, something happened. It was very unusual for them. So after the match occurred, he called me and said, um, uh, we have an empty slot, which means they're kind of caught with their pants down. And so they have to scramble for someone. And so they're like, you'd be a great candidate if you want the spot. You just have to meet a few people, but it's yours. Wow. And so uh, I went home, uh, thought about it a little bit. I, I did what I usually do was I asked my wife. I'm like, mm -hmm. hey, what do you think? <laughs> right. I'm dumb. I don't know how to make these decisions. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, you know, two more years and uh, things like that. Uh, I said, well, the downside is I have to do heart surgery, too, because the programs are are one yeah right. you have to do both um, and I was afraid of the heart surgeons I had uh, rotated with them <laughs> as a medical student and you know what you see at a big major university center I mean these people are you know type a alpha males mm -hmm. and females um, and just you know, kind of insane I had a hard time relating to them it seemed to me that their life was all about work and that kind of stuff um, and I didn't feel that way you know I was like well I'm happy to work a lot and I want to be a surgeon, but, um, but I want to have time for my family and that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, so I got that spot. So, um, that was a focus on thoracic surgery, lung surgery. And, uh, that's a two year program. I completed that program and looked for jobs, ended up at Geisinger, um, in thoracic surgery and just came here and oops, did I say Geisinger? That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2010 and um, yeah. we'll get Spielberg to bleep it out <laughs> and uh, 2010 and you know uh, at that time I'm a couple years into it, it I want to say it felt like something was a little bit missing or something I don't know I felt like I could I don't know if I felt like I'd do more or what or whether I was just feeling nervous about job security I don't know what it was but you know we had a, I had a mentor and he kept coming to me and saying oh you should he's a heart surgeon he said you should be a heart surgeon I'm like, i don't know about that i'm not i'm not sure i can do that those people are crazy and anyway he worked on me for about a year and then i was board certified so i, I could do it but i needed a little bit more uh you know get back up to speed and that kind of stuff and so i asked my wife i mm -hmm. said hey what do you think and she said, I'd respect you more if you were a heart surgeon. Boom. Oh, <laughs> sold. Oh, wow. Sold. <laughs> and she said, I think you'd be really good at it, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, so um, so that's what I did, and, and, and here I am. So I never, you know, this was never my big plan. 
Um, but here I am. Mm-hmm. So I kind of backdoored into that one too. And we're really glad you are. Yeah. Well, thank you. So I remember, I don't know if you remember, what, what year did you come to Geisinger? 2010. 2010. And I, I got to do the math here. Let's see. So it was six, about nine years ago, which would make it 2014-ish. When I came to work uh, as mm-hmm. a thoracic surgery PA, I had done heart surgery before I left. I came back to do thoracic surgery. So I'm working with Dr. Frischa and uh, I think it was probably two years in or something like that. I remember I remember saying to you, I think you should do heart surgery. I remember you saying that to me. And uh, so because, you know, you could, you, it, when you work with a lot of surgeons and everything, you obviously recognize the quality of people. So anyway, he certainly had the skill set and all the tools to be a heart surgeon. And now you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so you've been doing, how long have you been doing hearts now? Uh, so uh, 2015, really. 2015. Started in earnest, yeah. yeah. So eight years-ish yeah. now, full-time heart surgeon. Yeah. And uh, you really don't do much thoracic surgery now at all, right? Not much. I mean, yeah. occasionally needed, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, we're busy enough doing hearts. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, and being a heart surgeon, being a surgeon of any kind, um, I would think is kind of like a lot of other occupations minister you mentioned when you do it your your family's doing it too yeah right i mean they got to live that life too yeah you know you could be a, an er doctor and work a shift not to besmirch er doctors i'm sure they spend extra time afterwards yeah. and stuff but uh heart surgery is different i mean we we we're, we're always uh, any any second, you can, an emergency come in any time of day or night, and that kind of thing. Yeah. You have a plan every day, probably for when you think you'll be home, but I'm yeah. sure it often changes. Well, you know, th- 13 years into it, um, my wife will still say, "Hey, when do you think you'll be home?" She shouldn't ask that question. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, "I think around five. Uh-huh. I shouldn't answer the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, someone said that to me the other day. They said nobody really knows um, what it is like. Um, uh, unless you are in the family with one or you are one, right. You know what, what it means, you know, uh, people in our family, you know, they, I still don't think they did. My dad still says I'm a cardiologist, but <laughs> <laughs> no offense to any cardiologists. Listening. Right. No, yeah. none, t- none at all, but is Henry, is Henry a listener now? <laughs> <laughs> you listen to Peloton's podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it it just is, and you know, as a PA, I'm not I'm not a heart surgeon, but as a PA, it's the, the hours are unpredictable. Yeah, and you know, my, my my wife goes through that too. So, um, well, I think we say uh, we hope for the best, but expect the worst. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way it is. Because you uh, probably have an evening or two every like overnight every week that you're on call. Uh, yeah, yeah, on call. At, you Pretty know, and emergency then it just, cases, right? It just, yeah, it just depends. Sometimes it's nothing. Um, and you know, sometimes it's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's just very unpredictable and, um, that just comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, and even, if, even if you don't get called in, it's just the potential yeah. that impacts your family, right? Yeah. Yeah. The potential, like, you know, my wife hates to drive. So most, I, a lot of people just drive separately. You know, oh, I'm a call. We better drive separately. Right. We don't really do that. It's like, we want to go to, we want to go to Knoebels. So like, yeah, I'm on call, you know, like, well, how far is it? Well, you know, it's 30 minutes. Well, that's mm-hmm. reasonably close. So 
It's going to be crowded. We can't go to Knobles on a Saturday if I'm on call because it's too Knobles is a local amusement park. Oh, yeah. I guess we should point that out. That's all right. Um, (laughs) um, So, yeah, these things affect my family. And, you know, you know, you know that if you, well, yeah, we can go, but the, just the thing in your head doesn't bother me that much, but you know, for, for her, for family, it's like, well, I'm just not quite as relaxed if I know that at any minute your phone could go up. You know, right. one time we ordered dinner at Red Robin and yeah. like the dinners hadn't gotten there yet. And then I'm like, okay, it's time to leave right yeah. now. Yeah. And just walked out. Yeah. And thankfully it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. No, and this, uh, you know, we have a little, we have probably, um, you can answer this better than I can, but um, because we have what's called an ECMO program, we're, we're a little bit more opportunity for immediate emergency need of a heart surgeon than uh, if we didn't have an ECMO program. But heart surgery, there's always, you know, you know, for the most part, they're aortic dissections, but there's occasionally some other things, but uh, you know, you just don't know. These things don't, don't uh, follow uh, the sunrise and sunset. Um, A lot of specialties, you know, cardiology, interventional cardiologists, things like that, other surgeons, you know, there's definitely much more of a push now towards um, shift work amongst lots of different specialties. Um, And I think that's a a reflection of economics and it's also a reflection of, I got to say, I think it's a reflection of um, um, people's desire, ability, I don't know what the answer is you know, to serve others, you know, these people mm. who want to want to work 90 hours a week. No, I don't ever work 90 hours a week, but, you know, people who want to work a lot and are willing to do that and sacrifice that and maybe just not, don't seem to be as many people around who are willing to make that sacrifice. Is that better? Because people are better family man, mm-hmm. you know, fam, family woman. Is it worse? Because now, you know, your shift is up, so you're leaving. So the person who comes on doesn't know you as well as your regular doctor. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's, you know, different generations, the culture change, demographics, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff has yeah. played a role in all of that. Yeah. Um, and he's very lucky. You know, Dr. Frisch is really lucky because he's got these PAs that take care of his patients <laughs> overnight. He goes yeah. home and goes to bed. Very I good wouldn't, PAs. Very I good wouldn't, PA group. I wouldn't have agreed to do it if we didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, although I really hate it. I don't want to do night shift anymore. Well, you guys work yeah. some crazy, crazy hours. Like, you know, having known you, and then I knew Mike Dahl when he was a CV surge PA and like trying to figure out your guys' schedule all the time. Yeah, nobody, my it's wife, crazy. after all these years, she still doesn't quite understand it all the time. Yeah. So it's just a, yeah. But At we, one point, I had your sequence all figured out, but <laughs> not every job's the same. So, you know, some you could have a heart surgery job that's really busy or not as busy and, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, I think we do a good job providing really good care for our patients as quickly as we can. We've got really, really good surgeons, and Dr. Frisch is one of them. So um, I, this may be a, a tough question to answer, but if you're going to decide to do medicine at all, but especially heart surgery, okay, I mean, let's face it, uh, there's, if you're going to be a heart surgeon, pe- patients are going to die. Some percentage of patients are going to die. That's just the nature of the beast. We're not, we can't, we haven't solved all the problems yet. So, I mean, that's something you had to take on as a responsibility when you did this. Um, how did you, you know, how did you come, you know, how did you think about that? What was the thought process? And um, it's, I don't know if it's a thought process as much as it's um, just um, 
you have to cope with it. I mean, you know, um, it is, you experience it at all stages, uh, whether you're a nurse, mm-hmm. uh, PA, uh, nursing aide, physician, you experience death, um, and it affects you. Um, and then it affects, you know, depending on how invested, uh, you are in your personality. Some, some people take things very personally and other people not so much, but, um, you know, so you have to cope with it. And I think part of selecting a specialty is an understanding that, you know, I Mm -hmm. try to tell students and residents that like, you have to be able to cope with that in a non-destructive way. Mm -hmm. Um, if you cannot, then probably a, a, a field where you have so much life and death, particularly if it's attributable to something that you've done, is not a good choice if mm-hmm. you can't cope with that in a productive way or in a non-harmful way. You know, um, and, you know, I, a, a lot of people, you know, experience burnout um, for various reasons, but that's probably one of them. You know, it's just hard to being around people who are dying. Uh, it's hard to, to be uh, be there for families when people are dying. Um, you know, it's it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely hard. Um, but you know, we somebody has to do it. Yeah. And uh, this may sound, I don't know, I don't think, I guess it could sound arrogant. But you say if somebody has to do it, I might as well do it. You know, I, I, I like this work. Yeah. You, you put, you invest enough time into it. And then at some point you got to say, well, I, I, I should just do it. You know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, I remember applying for surgery and, you know, you're trying to articulate these things. You're writing personal statements. Well, why do you want to be a surgeon? Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and, you know, people are at their most vulnerable in those situations, in any healthcare situation, mm-hmm. um, some situations more vulnerable than others, probably needing surgeries right up there with needing chemotherapy or whatever, mm-hmm. or end of life. Um, and so see a lot of people do it poorly. Yeah. Um, I try not to do it poorly. Um, but you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing that, You know, that's kind of the place where you're like, okay, this is like, well, I'm doing something here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is worth missing my son's tennis match for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that because, you know, they, they need this. Uh, and I don't always deliver it for sure. Um, but um, I wish I could always deliver it. But, you know, um, but that's kind of, what was missing in, you know, when I was, oh, am I going to be an engineer? Nah, I don't mm-hmm. know. You're, what kind of field of medicine do I want to go into? Do I want to go into internal medicine? Nah, I don't know. Pediatrics? Nah, I don't know. Like surgery? Wow, that's like, you know, you know, to get someone through that vulnerable thing mm-hmm. um, is special, unique. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and I don't want any of our listeners out there to think that, you know, all these people are dying. And most people live, okay? So. <laughs> We have a lot more success than we do failure. So uh, (laughs) let me make sure that's clear. Uh, You know, you mentioned earlier talking about um, talking to patients, like here's what we can offer. Here's where you are. 
kind of thing. And you mentioned the folks that sort of like, let's just do this. And as opposed to the guys that, or the patients that struggle with the decision, you know, should I do this? And, and, uh, you know, I recently had my own experience going through back surgery. This isn't about me, but, but from a patient's perspective, you know, and it's just so hard sometimes, you know, sometimes it's really obvious. It's a no brainer, right? I'm having a heart attack. I got to get to the cath lab. You got to put a stent in. I mean, it's pretty easy. Yeah, do it. Um, but you know, back surgery is sometimes hit and miss, you know, or whatever, but you know, heart surgery, same thing. I mean, the recovery is hard and, uh, it's, it's really hard to come to that decision that I'm going to just, okay, go ahead, do it. Uh, yeah. cause especially if you know the stuff that could go wrong, but, um, but it's, it's a challenge and, uh, and it's, and I, I and I've listened to countless times surgeons talking to patients preoperatively and lots and lots of surgeons. And I can tell you, you do it as well as anybody or better. And you do. Thank you. And I've, I've worked with surgeons going to say that you need this operation, you know, sign here kind yeah. of thing. And this, well, that's easy. Yeah. Um, you know, part of the, you know, uh, part of the issue here is you look at how, um, COVID-19 was handled. Right. Um, it's so much easier if you just make it simple. You need this. Right. If you do this, you will be safe. If you don't do this, you will be unsafe. Yeah. That's simple, easy to digest. It's what people crave. Mm -hmm. They want it. Right. And it is our job not to resist the urge and not give it to them. Right. And um, so that it's... It's, uh, you know, very rare are the things, well, the evidence is very clear that if you don't do this, you know, you're going to die. Yeah. And if we do it, you're not. Yeah. You're going to feel great. You know, that's, yeah. that's the anomaly. Um, much more often it's these gray areas where, um, you could do this, you could do that. Is it going to work? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are, and those are, you know, those are, that's where most of the decisions we make. Mm-hmm like 99.9% of them. Yeah. Yep. You know, and you, you mentioned COVID-19, uh, just to uh, lighten up the mood here a little bit. I heard we don't have to wear masks in the hospital anymore. Correct. That email came through yesterday. That's and, uh, awesome. The lowest risk they could be at. So you have, awesome. You only have to wear one if you have COVID-19 or if you're caring for a patient with COVID-19. And the only way you know if you have COVID-19 is if you get a test. Now if we can stop the daily email that <laughs> <laughs> keeps coming out for the survey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been off. I've recovered from back surgery. I'm so happy to go back and know that I don't have to wear a mask. That's yeah. that's awesome. It's been great. To be honest with you, it's, um, you know, to see people's face uh, in a hospital is just so essential. Yes. Yeah, so essential. Whether it's whether it's the people who are caring for the patient, um, or the coworkers, you know, patients, family members, I mean, they should really, uh, like send out a survey or something. Patients, how do you feel now that your providers are now able to not have a mask on? Right. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, there's a, I think my microphone just, or I was just too far you're away. Good. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Yeah. You just left the bar. Um, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. How, how uh, many how many places from customer service perspective preach service with a smile, right? Yeah. <laughs> for how many years, like service for, with a mask, right? For how many years now we've been you service could, with a mask, you right? Paint a smile, smile. you could, and people did do that, right? Smile with your eyes. Like usually look pretty scary. Up with like That's right. The clear mask. Pretty freaky. <laughs> I had a guy come in with a clown mask on with like a clown smile. Yeah, that's I'm not like, good. That's like a creepy clown. Though. Yeah, you yeah. don't want that's that. not a good clown. <laughs> 
Well, you know, you mentioned COVID-19. I, I didn't think about going there, but and, and you don't have to um, editorialize on, on our handling of it. But, but um, yeah, how did you cope with that? I mean, it's a, it was such a challenge for all of us, right? Um, that must be, I mean, it's so hard to cope with that because we didn't stop. Mm-hmm. No, we didn't stop. Um, you know, I mean, it was, uh, for us, it was um, because of what we do mostly being considered essential mm-hmm. you know it didn't affect us a whole lot um it, it presented challenges with with uh, families not being able to visit yeah really um, that was a big one yeah that's bad for people right um and um you know there was you know there were definitely times even though i was never a 100 front line we you know, did some some things for ECMO patients but you know there was a big toll on the on the healthcare providers i mean um, you know, it was, you know, nurses and respiratory therapists and ICU doctors. I mean, um, big emotional toll. I mean, yeah, big time. Yeah. We're still feeling the aftershocks of it, uh, yeah. from a, you know, amount of employees perspective and, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. So, so yeah. um, you talked about, you know, handling all this stuff and, and coping with it, uh, you know, I know, I know you're a Christian. How's your faith helped you through, you know, all this stuff? Well, um, you know, for me, um, it's nice. It's on a superficial level. It's nice to share it with patients, pray together if they are, if they ask for that. Um, that's comforting to me, comforting to them. Um, uh, for me, um, and what we do, it is, it is very hard to cope when things don't go as planned yeah. and outcomes are less than desirable. Uh, and to feel that ultimately God is in control, that things happen according to God's plan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think I could do it without believing that to be true. Um, and the other side of it is, is that, you know, I believe that God won't give us things that we can't handle. And so while I know I want a certain outcome, it's not always going to come, but I know that uh, with his help that I can handle it. Um, and so I rely on uh, on God in prayer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, without those things, I don't think I would be able to cope in a non-destructive way. Yeah. And with my personality, I'm, I don't think I could cope with it in a non-destructive way. Yeah. Everybody's different. Yeah. And, um, and I work with a lot of different heart surgeons and I'm not gonna mention any names, but, um, but a lot of them, there weren't too many that were the really normal. <laughs> You're one of them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but you know, I mean, the truth is that there's there's uh, there's all kind well, all kinds of personality types. I'm I'm sure there's some somebody could figure out like this personality type tends toward this type of occupation, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, but I don't know how people cope uh, without without that kind of faith. I mean, I don't think I could. Yeah, I mean, to do a lot of different things, whether it's an astronaut or a uh, brain surgeon or. Um, or like the people who uh, who uh, wash windows on tall buildings and swing around. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that that are kind of not normal things to do, mm-hmm. and um, 
and you know what what draws those people to that and how do they how did they get to that point how did they get through it um you know and and then you need innovators right innovators are unusual people who think about things differently mm-hmm. and you know if dr debakey didn't uh, pioneer heart surgery at the time you know i was never going to be a pioneer i'm not a risk taker right you know yeah um for me i'm a try to follow the book kind of guy well if you're a if you had a world full of me you'd never have any innovation right <laughs> um so it takes all different types um and so we're all different yeah yeah I mean, man uh, the the early the pioneers in heart surgery were crazy <laughs> some of the stories that are out there yeah i mean you got there's a book called the heart healers i read a little while ago this is the way we developed heart surgery those guys were just crazy mm-hmm. and uh, but you know, we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for them. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I I heard someone say, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but in order to learn how to make scrambled eggs, you have to break a few eggs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or something it's, like that. I might be getting it wrong. Oh, yeah. it's, it, as you mentioned that, I was thinking back, going back a little ways in this story when that, like you're a heart surgeon Well, you're, you're doing your fellowship, right? Yeah. Uh, like, like how, what's the first thing you do to like, do your first surgery like how like how does that like how does that start like here go ahead you try it yeah right graduated responsibility under supervision <laughs> but but yeah <laughs> see one do one teach one yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> that went out the window we don't do that anymore i don't no. think uh, yeah, yeah. So i think like your dad's teaching how to change a tire right it's like here you take a lug nut off right, right. yeah it's like yeah. but instead it's like hey no. Doing heart surgery here. You do one. Well, we'd like to put everybody's mind at ease out there that we uh, that it is what we call. I'm sure you have a process. Yeah, graduated responsibility. That is right. Yeah. Um, no, no such thing as bad student. Only bad teacher. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had uh, a number of yeah, a couple leadership positions, right? Uh, so you, I don't know exactly what how much you were in charge, but you were running the medical students for a while in mm-hmm. in their rotations uh, mm-hmm. in surgery. Yeah, I was the clerkship director. Um, you know, um, uh, I would say for me, um, other leadership positions, I don't know. I'm not much one of a position kind of guy. Well, I know, but you got some title, don't you? I got some titles. Yeah, yeah what's the title? <laughs> well, I'm the I'm the director of mechanical circulatory support. Right. So sort of a process of exclusion. <laughs> everybody, whoever wants to take a step forward and everybody took a step back is it <laughs> wait wait I, i'm supposed to step back not forward oh, no. right so the mechanical support for, and I, I you know i feel really stupid because when we recorded the podcast with uh, peloton uh, brian lieberman and he went on ecmo and i'm saying well ecmo that stands for extracorporeal oxygen membrane like no no that's not what it is <laughs> totally messed that up so anyway uh obviously there's good, there's good pas and there's bad pas <laughs> right <laughs> yeah just let me take a vein out um so that mechanical support is that kind of stuff so basically devices that help support the heart and lungs heart and or lungs um and patients that need it. Um, so uh, that kind of gets me into the f- sort of the future, like wh- where we are now and then, and then what you think the, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but like the future of medicine, like for, from, from, first of all, let's go, let's uh, ask the question from the perspective of what you see of new doctors coming out, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing and the training that they're getting. Um, yeah. 
you know, um, the I've I I've been in this now. I don't know, fifteen years or so. Um, I would say I experienced this at all steps of the way. That kind of ten percent of people do ninety percent of the work. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that part's any different. Um, I I do see that in the more recent generations, because they do get less uh, independence that they, when they come, are not quite as ready um, for independence. Do you mean they don't get as much independence during... During training. Okay, yeah. During training. So um, so that process continues when they start their job, generally, which is okay. Um, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, it's great when, when, you know, when you hire someone into your job, whatever your job is, and they already know how to do it. Mm-hmm. that's great but um but uh but it's okay if you're just taking the raw material and then you're um continuing their learning and their maturation process um and i would say that's more prevalent now um in in uh, in training whether that's better or worse i don't know and in, in some ways it's better um i think in some ways uh in a lot of ways Patients probably get a little bit better care in teaching hospitals now than they did 20 years ago or 30 yeah, years ago. Right. Or at least everybody does uh, as opposed to, a, you know, a sort of a graduated, well, these, are the, these are the patients for the private doctors and these are the patients who don't have private doctors kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I also think that um, the people who are most invested in teaching you are the people who are going to be your partners. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, if you've got the raw material, I don't mind at all bringing people up to speed. In fact, I think it's, it's probably a good, a pretty good model. It's more like an apprenticeship model. Mm-hmm. You know, the down, we do see though, is a lot of people doing a lot of training because they don't feel ready when they come out, you know, where they complete some certain amount of training and then they feel like they have to get more mm-hmm. because they just don't quite feel like they're ready to be, uh, be the independent person that they feel like they should be, um, and so, so we see that I can't draw a lot more. I can't really draw many other conclusions about, you know, newer doctors. I, I think that, um, you know, people, people do seem to be a little bit more interested in a predictable schedule, which mm-hmm. is understandable, mm-hmm. but just not very feasible right? in certain jobs. Um, and I don't think it's as good for the patients, Mm -hmm. but maybe they're better parents. Like I said, I mean, um, the jury's out as to whether I'm a good father or a good husband or, or a good family member. You know, I don't get to visit my parents as often as I would like, or my siblings. Um, so the jury's out, but, um, you know, I do think I want the, I kind of like the doctor who doesn't have a life outside of the hospital and wants to be at my bedside right. time there's something yeah. wrong with me yeah. i'm okay with that yeah right. <laughs> uh, i've yeah. seen that model and i think some of those people are the best physicians and provide the best care yeah yeah no doubt uh there's definitely a balance there that you have to achieve yeah. somehow right yeah. yeah um heart surgery and and the use of ecmo and that kind of stuff this is getting too technical maybe we even maybe 
not exactly the best topic, but uh, the future. What do you what do you see as the future of medicine? I mean, I'm not sure we have all this defined yet. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Chat GPT is going to take over. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask about AI. Uh, well, you know, you told me before, and you're right. Skynet's becoming aware. Yeah, Skynet's aware. Yeah. No, I think uh, you know, frontiers for our our thing. That's kind of cool. Um, you know, we, we you know we can fix most a lot of things that are failing now, and mm-hmm. the heart is one of them. And we have you know we have these. Uh, implantable pumps, ventricular assist devices that you know started as a to be as big as a bookcase that could pump the blood for the patient, and now they're as smaller than my fist. Um, and soon they'll be completely implantable, no external connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a, an amazing feat of technology and engineering um, that. Um, that can help a lot of people. Um, but like all interventions, if used inappropriately or wrong can number one, cause a lot of harm and number two, cost a lot of money Yeah, and make us bankrupt. So, you know, I think, uh, uh, I think that frontier is very interesting. Um, I also think that the, you know, something has to give at some point, there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning for, um, deciding how we are going to pay for all of these things. Right. Um, in a responsible way, uh, in an equitable way, uh, in an, uh, um, and something that balances both the uh, uh, improvement of quality of life and things like that, balanced against, you know, I mean, uh, I would like the $10 million house, but... <laughs> Just because we can do it, should we do it, right? right? And I would like the f-150 raptor <laughs> series but i don't buy that because i make a decision like eh, i don't need that right i don't want to spend that much money yeah um that's how we make most decisions and all healthcare should decisions shouldn't be like that but at some point you know it comes down to we're gonna to have to make some decisions and how transparent are we going to be about the decision yeah i like transparency i'm a big proponent of transparency and uh I think that's the way forward, whether you're talking about COVID policy, whether you're talking about healthcare policy, whether you're talking about uh, Ukraine, Mm -hmm. whether you're talking about talking with your wife about things (laughs) or talking with your kids about the dangers in the world or, Mm -hmm. or talking with people who are asking you, Hey, why do you go to church? Mm -hmm. Or do you you ever doubt, you know, things like that, you know, just transparency. Yeah, man, we gotta be genuine and transparent. Yeah. Uh, Don't Yeah. I, I want to go back. So assist devices, right? You're talking LVADs, mm-hmm. fully implantable. So no, ba- mm-hmm. like no external batteries at all. Yeah, like no everything. external batteries. You know, wow. like remember how. I remember guys coming into cardiac rehab with like a vest with like battery packs yeah. all around the vest for right. it. You know how now like they kind of, I'm surprised there wasn't a lot of fanfare about this, but you know how like all of the sudden you could charge your iPhone by putting yeah. it on something yeah, and it didn't have a wire. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, no, no, you can just charge it by in their phone, in your car or on that little thing. I'm like, that is a game changer concept. Yeah. Um, and so that, uh, you sleep on it, you basically sleep on a recharging pad. Yeah. Oh, wait, some way to recharge, (laughs) some way to recharge the batteries, you know, without that's crazy. Yeah. 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 And they tell me they, people who know more about this than I do, you know, probably 10 years away. Is there much robotics in, in heart surgery? Uh, some, um, you know, robotics right now applications are, um, uh, you know, robotics really excels in when you have to work in a really far away place, but do precision, precision yeah. stuff. Um, so, and you know, like 
if you're going to operate on the knee, like that's really close. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure where not the really robot fits it. in. That doesn't mean it doesn't help, but I don't know. I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, in heart surgery, you know, there are some things that we do that are kind of far away in a deep hole. Um, the challenge in heart surgery is uh, that, you know, a lot of things can happen. And if you're at the other side of the room when they happen, you know, it's not good. So that's the challenge in heart surgery. And some people have, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are working on that. So for mitral valve surgery and, and some very limited bypass applications, um, some people have developed that technology and use that niche um, to great effect. Um, but whether that gets to the mainstream with heart surgery, general kinds of heart surgery remains to be seen and other kinds of surgery too. Well, I hope it doesn't come until I retire because it's much more fun when we open the chest and <laughs> I get to do more. Yeah. I'm, we're not supposed to admit that. I think I shouldn't have admitted that earlier that surgery is fun, but I've said it to patients time and time again. I think it's they took it okay. Yeah. Well, aren't, aren't the interventionists still trying to take all your business, right? I don't know what the data is there now. They certainly are very, very useful. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, there are a bunch of different tools. Each tool has its benefit, you know, um, and uh, each has its risks, and each has a, there are, you know, that's the great thing about medicine is that um, that still to this day, there's very few things that are very clearly associated with you know, okay, you got to do this. still an art form in a lot yeah, of Yeah, there right? is. And, and, and all of, you know, you can make guidelines, you can make cook, cookbooks, you can ask chat GPT what to do. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of it comes down to, you know, I could say to a patient, well, we could do this procedure that'll open you up and your risk of stroke is 1%. Or we could do this other procedure where you'd be out of the hospital quicker, but you don't get opened up but your risk of stroke is 3%. Right. You know, yeah. 90% of people will pick the, I don't want to get cut open. I'll take the risk of stroke, but not an inconsequential people. Will say, the guy said this to me the other day. He said, I'd do anything not to have a stroke. Yeah. That yeah. strokes are devastating. Yeah. So you cut me open. So, you know, that you, you can't teach that. Um, you can't tell a robot how to do that. Right. You know, the robot could present the options to the patient, but at the end of the day, the patient's going to say, what do you, I don't know, what, what, what do you think? Yeah. You know, how does it apply to me? The classic, if you were me, yeah. what would you do? Right? right. What would you do if you were me or if I was a family member? And they teach you in medical school, you know, you're not supposed to answer that question. You're supposed right. to be objective and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. eh, no, you know, we should try to treat people like they are a family member. And it's okay to tell people sometimes, well, if it was my family member, I would say this. Because they yearn for that. Yes. Yeah. They yearn yeah. for that. You just yeah. can't abuse it. You just have to... Yeah, you know that can come at the end of the conversation after you talked about all the options and the risks, benefits, and alternatives, and then they're confused. Yeah, and then they're like, "I don't even know what to do." Right. Yeah. Pel- Peloton shared how much being in the community and having friends in healthcare. If you remember, he like he he shared how much that meant to him of just that trust factor right. that, he, that he had in his healthcare yeah. team that were taking care of him, and his wife just knew the people taking care of him had his truly had his best interest in mind, right. and that they were going to suggest and help them through it and making the right decision. Yeah. 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 I'll tell you, it's, I, I don't think I would say way, way more than vast majority of patients, maybe a hundred percent don't really know what they're getting into. Oh yeah. Don't, there's no way to know. 
No. There's no way to you know. Unless, know. Unless you're going for a reoperation, if you experienced it. Unless you've experienced it. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, you know what, whatever your field is, you know, you or your spouse or your family, they, they're the best people that know kind of what your life is like or what you're going through. Yeah. And it's the same thing with that. Unless, unless you've really nursed someone through it or you've had it, you just can't know. We can talk about it, but you just can't mm-hmm. know. No, no, you can't. You just don't know. And, and, and things are unpredictable. I tell you, um, every, every form of medicine, I guess, is, is like this. But there's, you know, here's the steps of the procedure. Coronary bypass operation. Here's the steps of the procedure. But in every case, there's judgment to be made while you're doing it. And I think that's the real the real difficult thing to get, you could speak to this, but uh, only through experience can you develop that judgment. You know, I mean, you're, you're now working on your own, you're a heart surgeon, you got no, I mean, you could always call a partner down, but there's, there's like judgment calls all the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, there's, uh, there's no substitute for that. Um, uh, And, you know, um, part of the problem is we all have a bias. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we're not very good at recognizing it. Um, and we are all creatures of being susceptible to doing what is easy. And so one of the, you know, big things that I uh, tell people coming through or uh, people that we're training is like, cannot over, I cannot impress upon you enough that you are not the best judge of a lot of things in these situations. And it's always useful to get another informed opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, to, to to help reduce the the bias in your decisions whenever possible yeah um, and so that you can make the best judgment when you can how has uh, doing heart surgery and dealing with all these issues life and death issues judgments that you have to make things like that how has it changed your perspective has it changed your perspective at all and you know outside of the operating room you know outside of taking care of patients uh, probably less patient than I used to be. Um, that's because you know this is this is nothing compared to what i would do over here and it's you know not necessarily it's just uh i'm so used to asking for something and getting it (laughs) 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 what you know when you're in the middle of an operation you're used to asking for something and getting it and uh and so you get kind of impatient um you know um and I guess I'm not sure how to answer that question. Has Katie noticed a difference? <laughs> Does she say you're not in the OR? <laughs> <laughs> no, because it doesn't. It doesn't spill over there. It spills over more with children. Yeah, you know, because children really test your patience. Mm-hmm. Um, they really fight you. Um, you know about uh, you're trying to get them to do something that they don't want to do. Um, so you know that's that's. Uh, uh, probably spills over there a little bit. And, you know, if you're not, you know, it's, it's, it's a, something I realized is that, uh, you know, in general, your children don't really want to talk to you. Mo- most children don't <laughs> want to talk to you. Um, and the more you're around, the more likely they're going to have that moment of weakness where they say, hey, dad, do you think I should do drugs? <laughs> <laughs> um and so, uh, you know, miss out a little bit on that, I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I I'm not quite sure how it's, how it's changed me. I mean, I think I like to say it gives me a little, uh, a little less 
you know, I don't know. Some people are just afraid to die and some people just aren't. Yeah. And I used to think that, uh, I used to think that was a personality trait. Then I thought maybe it was related to, um, whether people were Christians or not. Um, but it's not actually, some people are just afraid to die. Mm -hmm. And some people are just like, well, my time is going to come. Um, I don't know if I was always like that, but I kind of, I kind of, maybe the, maybe it's changed me in that way a little bit. I don't know. Okay. Um, one more question. And I got, I got two that we always end with, which won't take too very long, but, uh, one more question before we get to that. Um, you've seen, experienced a lot of different leadership and that stuff. You've had some leadership, uh, responsibility. What do you think are the, the, the best, the most important aspects of being a good leader? Um, uh, I think that uh, I think if people don't if people don't see I think probably the uh, one of the most important overarching principles in life is humility mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think if people don't see that in their leaders um, then you know it, I think that's the most important behavior to model um, or, or I don't know if modeling it's the right word but um, um, you know, to be able to acknowledge when you're wrong, to be able to ask for help, um, to be able to see that other people can contribute, um, regardless of their position. You know, it's like, I watched Ratatouille the other night. It's like, anyone can cook, you know, mm -hmm. the Disney movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that people need to see that in their leaders. I think the effective teams, you know, see that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the other things is if you're not willing to do what you ask your team members to do, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a compromised leader. I mean, see, we're not worthless. I'm not going to say you that, but you know, we, in surgery, we talk about, you know, so-and-so the chairman, so-and-so the director or whatever. But in surgery, what I've observed is that if you are in charge of a bunch of surgeons if you don't perform surgery yourself to some extent, they will not respect you. Mm. Um, if you don't take a call close to the amount or at least a significant amount as the other guys, they will not respect you. And if they do not respect you, then you are an ineffective leader. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you're the general contractor on the construction site and, you know, there's trash that needs to get picked up or the site needs to be swept up, you know, no one likes the leader who says like, hey, you no, I do that. I don't do that. Right. You know, yeah. and of course you'll notice then in the effective leaders who are willing to do that kind of thing, they don't have to do that kind of stuff. Right. Because people want to work for those kinds of leaders, the yeah. people who will do whatever is needed. Um, the people who are humble. Um, those are the effective leaders. Yeah. Well said. Lead from the front. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that transparency I talked about before, I think that's part of humility. The, the thing about humility is you can't fake that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good answer. People try to, but yeah, that it doesn't work. You can see through it usually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so last two questions. First one is if you were to pick somebody, could be somebody from the distant past, somebody now, whatever that you would say is somebody that you've has inspired you, your hero, that kind of thing. Who would you pick? Um, as a Christian, I'm supposed to say Jesus. You can, you can, yeah. Um, and, and you can pick more than one if you want. Yeah. The Sunday school answer, right? Yeah, that's the Sunday school answer. <laughs> one of three. Right. Um, and certainly I think Jesus embodies a lot of those qualities, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, 
um, other people, um, you know, you, you take a little bit from everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, obviously, uh, each of my parents I admire for different reasons. My, my in-laws, you know, um, very similarly. Um, I've had several mentors um, in surgery, specifically cardiac, um, as well as thoracic, that, you know, you, you take something from kind of each of them, mm-hmm. um, and then you, you try to take the good and leave the bad mm-hmm. and make yourself better. Yeah, so probably dodged your question a little bit. But no, no, that's yeah. good. That's fine. Yeah. I picked Jesus when I was asked, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's the right answer. Well, it is the right answer, yeah. but also you can, you know, it's not just the right answer because that's what you're supposed to answer, but you can, you can, you can read the Bible and understand that. Like, yeah. Well, this is what, well, he was the servant leader. Right. And he did put others first. Yep. Um, and uh, how, how can I do that? Well, there's other earthly folks that model. Yeah. Jesus, right? Absolutely. End up being great earthly right. Absolutely. Uh, mentors and models for us. Yep. Good, good stuff. Um, last question. This is a chance to speak to the men of America or millions of listeners. Mm-hmm. So what's your message for the men of America? My message. You should have told me that one earlier today so I could prepare for it. Um, we well, got to listen to the other podcasts. I ask everybody this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that I, I think that I don't do it very well, but I'm going to say this is what I think that um, that when you put the other person's needs first, mm-hmm. that that that's the way to live your life. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm, I referenced marriage, um, children, mm-hmm. patients, coworkers whatever. None of us are very good at it. We're humans. Mm-hmm. We're terrible at it. Yeah. We're terrible yeah. at it. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the 5% of the day when I can put someone else's needs in front of myself, I hope that, I think that keeps my wife coming back, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, or, or the people to listen to, you know, like, wow, you know, I know my husband doesn't want to drive me to Disney world again because mm-hmm. it hurts his neck, but he doesn't, and doesn't complain about it. Yeah. Um, so, um, I you only have to drive to Virginia and then <laughs> you get on the auto train. Yeah. Yeah. Auto train's not all it's what, you know, made out to be, but it's okay. No. Can't sleep on the auto train. But, um, you know, I think that whether you're a Christian or you're not, I think if everybody in the world did that, yeah. Mm-hmm. The world would be a better place. Yeah. I feel like we should start singing or something. Yeah, world peace. We are the world. <laughs> yeah, I think putting putting other people's needs before our own is really um, the message I would I would uh, I would I would say. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It sounds so simple, right? But it's so hard to yeah to do and yeah, and not sound negative, but you don't see it. I don't think in as much in our society as it as it should be. No, I don't see it in myself on a day-to-day basis. You you're, know? you're right, five percent. Yeah, if it's, you do it, if you do it five percent yeah, of your time, uh, yeah, you're you're lucky. You know, and um, but I think we should be transparent about that, right? Yeah. You know, here we are on a podcast talking about 
these things, but I don't want to give the impression that I'm good at them, that I, that I regularly do them, but it's how I think and what I strive for. Yeah. yeah we're so, uh, recognizing the need to do it is the first step. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, we uh, should always be striving for excellence, knowing that we're never going to be perfect, but mm-hmm. keep on trying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a great message. And in F3, they talk about living third. So God's first, everyone else is second, and we're third. That stole that from the military because the guy that founded F3 is military guy, but, but, but it's, it's what Jesus taught us. One of the last things he did was wash the disciples' feet. He said, this is the example I'm leaving for you. So uh, that's a great message. Uh, all right, Dallas, you got anything else? No, I think we covered everything I could think of and the questions that popped up along the way, but yeah, this was great. Yeah, it was. I, wasn't, I, sure, I, wasn't sure that well, how this one was going to, how this was going to go or where we might go as far as a discussion, but this was, I, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this Thanks, discussion you too. sitting down and talking with you. Yeah. Thank well, you. I, I, I said at the beginning that I really admire you and I do, I think, you know, I love working with you and, uh, I love working for you. Uh, and, and, uh, I know it's, I know you look at it as a, as a, um, a partnership and taking care of our patients. And, uh, I would say that after many, many years of doing heart surgery and being a PA, um, right now our, our surgeons are, are as good as we've ever had, not just in the operating room, but outside the operating room. And, uh, and it's the, the reason why I, a big reason why I want to go to work every day. Um, uh, because it'd be miserable if you work with people that, that you didn't get along with, or they just were very stressful or they're the crazy surgeons that I've, that shall remain nameless (laughs) (laughs) that I may have worked with, may or may not have worked with in the past, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, and I can't wait to get back to work on Monday. So we can't wait to have you. Yeah, I'm sure. The the team was just mentioning that today. Yeah. When is that lazy bum coming back? (laughs) I can tell you that sitting in this chair is killing me right now, but I could tell, (laughs) but I'm getting better. So I'll be there Monday morning. Yeah. Lord willing. Lord willing. Yeah. Well, thank you for right, being good. here. Well, thanks really for having me. appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. It's great. Thank yeah. you. Dial up. You're not signing us out? We just spoke to a high impact man. Again. Yeah. Another it's high amazing impact amazing how that man. works out yeah. every episode. All right. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> right. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I would like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their story of becoming a high impact man. More information and resources can be found at highimpactman.com. If you like this podcast, please consider following us on our social media pages or email us at him at highimpactman.com. That is H-I-M at highimpactman.com. The High Impact Man podcast has a new episode every week, and you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. Have a great week, everyone.